Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the storm line by an award-winning sports writer, author, and father. His first book, Love Zach, talks about a sport loved around the United States, football. He tries to answer this question, what happened to Zach Easter? We welcome Reed Forgrave. Sean, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Let's go beyond the mic. Reed, Love Zach is a passionate detective story written part cautionary tale and part love story. Is that how you would describe the book? Yeah, and you know, to be honest, I, I love that what you lead with is is love story because it can be very easy to look at a book like this and say, "Oh, this is a book about concussions and football." I've read this book before, and this book's different because I think the biggest reason this book is different isn't just because it's about a twenty four year old man who only played football through high school, suffered so many concussions after he had CTE. And then died by suicide. Um, by the way, he was correct in thinking that he had CP, which is really disturbing to me as a, a as a parent. But this is a love story, and it's a story about, in fact, his mother and father and his girlfriend, and how they tried so hard during the final months of Zach's life when he was uh, really deteriorating, with going down the spiral. They tried so hard to stay, help save him from this disease. And ultimately, they did not succeed. But what's special about this story is that you hear Zach speaking in his own words from beyond the grave. Because he left behind all these journals. He left behind a, a typewritten autobiography of sorts. Uh, his family had graciously uh, gave me. And if you left behind all these text messages, you his girlfriend that she gave me. So you very much hear how much pain he's going through, but how much love there is between himself and his family and his girlfriend and how they're trying so hard to save him and how ultimately he decided that he, he couldn't overcome this disease, but he very much wanted his story to go on, his legacy to live on, uh, to try to, Make the sport of football safer and make sure that no one else suffers the way that he did. Those were essentially his dying work. You've covered the NBA, NFL, college football, and basketball. Why was Zach's story so important for you to tell others? You know, when I first came across the story, it was in his obituary, in the Des Moines Register, which actually I live in Minnesota now, but I used to live in Iowa. I used to work for that. And it was passed on to me by a friend. And I remember being absolutely jarred when I read this obituary because the final paragraph speaks in very frank words about the concussions he suffered in football and how this led to his uh, to his descent. And I went into this, you know, the first time that I spoke with his mother, Brenda Easter, was, I think it was the day after his funeral. It was right before Christmas of 2015. The first time that I went and hung out with his family in person was two weeks after Zach's death. And I spent four hours sitting on the living room floor talking about Zach's life and talking about his struggles, talking about the joys of his life, but also talking about these very dark moments uh, that, that he lived through in the final years of his life. And what struck me from that very first moment, one, you know, this is a family that is going through 
a tragedy that they will never get over. So the day they die, they will have to live with this and live with the pain of losing, you know, a son, a boyfriend who she expected to become her husband. Uh, you know, someone who was very loved, was a very positive influence in a lot of lives. But beyond that, it was like, I immediately recognized what that meant about where we stand in America in the 21st century. We love football. And by the way, I love football. This book is not a diatribe against football, not by any means. Uh, in part, it's almost a love letter to football. But it's also a, a cautious love letter that when we read that story, we recognize, yes, we love this sport. And we see all the rewards that it gives. That it gives. I mean, here in, in the upper Midwest, down in Texas, all of America loves the sport of football. But we now see that it can, you know, playing football can be a little more dangerous than just having a bum knee for the rest of your life or a bad shoulder. This can be really hit at what it makes us to be huge. Uh, not to say football should go away, uh, just to say that we should be very cautious about it. I remember that very first time that I hung out with Zach Sam. Um, I mean, this was all so fresh to them. And the whole time we're talking, right behind me on the television, Zach's favorite team, the Green Bay Packers, are playing his father's favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings. And every single man in that room, myself included, by the way, sneaking looks at the game, checking the score. Uh, we're looking at our phone, check our fantasy football score. Even as we're talking about, as Brendan Easter is speaking about the sport that killed my son, we still love football. Even in that dying days, he still loves football. Even as he's blaming the sport for his demise, he's still watching Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers play on Thanksgiving night. So I think there's something very... I mean, it's subtle. There's a lot of grave in this story because we do love this sport, but at the same time, especially the parent of two young boys, I have, I have some very grave concerns about this sport. You thrive on long form stories covering from COVID to elections. How heartbreaking was it for you to read Zach's diaries and that 39 page document labeled concussions, my silent struggle. It was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And frankly, the most devastating parts of reading those diaries and of interviewing his friends and his family and his coaches and his classmates, uh, the most devastating part had to do with his relationship with his father. Maybe that's because I'm a dad myself and I've spent so much time putting myself in my sister's shoes. Uh, or maybe because I, I think he is, in a way, the most tragic character in this book outside of that. Uh, Miles Easter was, you know, what you think of as a man's man. This is a family from, from rural Iowa out in the cornfields of the Kindle. They've been there for, for seven generations, since before the Civil War, when this family homesteaded in Iowa, before it was even a state. And they still have that land. They still go deer hunting on that land with fall and winter. Uh, and Miles Easter I mean, he is what you think of as a man's man. He's not someone who's going to go to therapy and say, I need to work these out. But he's absolutely tortured by his son's death because he feels that he had some sort of role in it. He was a football coach. He was a uh, coach at a small college in Iowa. He played Division One football himself uh, for Drake University in Des Moines. 
And then he was also the defensive coordinator for the high school team in this small town, and all three of his sons played for him. Uh, I think, in a way, the one solace that his father takes is that when that graduated from high school in 2010, that was just as all this talk about concussions and contact sports, yeah, just football. Uh, we could talk about numerous sports that are affected by this, but I think football is the most prominent and, and the one where it was most baked into the sport. Uh, these issues are just becoming in the news, and people are just learning about it. Miles Easter can plead ignorance in a way that I think parents today cannot. Uh, he didn't know, and he can be honest, but he didn't know, people didn't know about what concussions, and by the way, what sub-concussive hits, which I think are so much more dangerous because they, you don't flag those as, uh, you don't get a 15-yard penalty for a sub-concussive hit. You might get one for, for targeting, but you, you know, sub-concussive hits are very much take this football. Miles Easter didn't know. We didn't know as a country, as, as fans, as parents, as athletes. We didn't know what this meant. Uh, now we sort of do. Uh, the science is still very young about this. We're not talking about an issue that's going to be uh, coming out, you know, going to be solved in a year or two. We're talking about 20 or 30 years. Uh, we've, we've seen, I think, with COVID, how long science can take. Even when the whole world is behind it, we're still, we still, you know, we hope there's going to be a vaccine in winter. We don't really know. Uh, but uh, I think with concussion, this is, you know, the, the brain is the most mysterious and complicated objects uh, in the universe, you know, in the known universe. And uh, it, it, it's something that scientists are very much working on, but very much have not solved. That, to me, is what's most scary about that. Where did Zach get the concept of playing through the pain? Was it a coach, uh, his father? And how did it change his life? So people in this small town refer to the Easter mentality. Uh, and this is, the mentality of the Easter family that you're, you're a real man. You don't complain. His brother, his older brother, who also played uh, college football, uh, went on to play college football. He fractured his vertebrae during a high school game. And he kept on playing. Uh, that's what you do because it's football. Uh, this is the Easter mentality. But it's also, this is why, look, this is why football can be dangerous because you play through the pain and it's one thing playing through a straight ankle. It's another thing playing through a bruised brain. Uh, but this is one reason that we love football. This is what football you know, historically has been a, a sport that is so aligned with American power, America's rise as a superpower, with American military might. Uh, if you look at when football came about, it came about right after the Civil War. As America grew as a nation and became a world power, so did football grow as our national sport? I don't think anyone would argue right now that baseball is still is still the favorite sport in America. And that's been around for sixty or seventy years. It is, of course, football, and it's because we see football as a sport where you rub dirt in it and take a laugh, where we value toughness more than anything else. When strength or speed, we value toughness, and that's what the Eastern mentality is in a nutshell. It is, you don't complain, you're a man, you get out there and do your job. And by the way, like, 
I know we can refer to that as, as toxic masculinity these days, uh, and sometimes it is. But other times, there's, I think, great value in some of those lessons that we can learn from sports like football that, that hey, life's hard. You're going to go through some adversity. You pick up and get through it. Uh, that, to me, is both the great part of football, and at the same time, it's the, it's the scary part of football, especially when it has to do with the brain, because, you know, you don't have an x-ray that can say you have a broken brain. Uh, you have that for an arm. No one's going to, if you have a broken arm, no one's going to look at you sideways and be like, why is he not playing? And be like, oh, he has a broken arm. With the brain, it's just a wholly different thing. And that's where I do think there is a destructive side to this, this up and out mentality that is, you know, the core tenet of football. Reed Forgrave, author of Love, Zach, joins us beyond the mic. Reed, did Zach lose hope with his brain pretty much being broken? Yeah, 100%. You can see it in his writing. Uh, he, so it, it's really a remarkable document. But he had not just the foresight to leave these writings behind, but that he had the mental faculties to be able to document what he's going through. You can see in his writing, it'll be like June 10th, 2015. Today was a good day. I'm so excited about trying to beat this. Allie, my girlfriend, is going to help me out. I'm so positive. Two days later, I drove to a therapy appointment. I sat in the parking lot for an hour. I couldn't go in. I can't beat this point. I was driving home to my childhood home and got lost on a drive that I've made thousand times before. It's devastating to watch in real time. And he's hanging back and forth between these emotions. But ultimately, yeah, he completely lost hope. Um, which to me is incredibly sad. That's maybe the saddest part of this entire story. Because he had family in his corner. He had a heroic girlfriend in his corner. Uh, did they fully understand what PTE what it is? No, they didn't. Uh, but they started to come around and realize their son was going through something really, really difficult. What makes me most sad about him losing hope is that I don't want to say he could have beat this degenerative brain disease, but he could have managed it. Uh, there are, would he have, you see in his journals again and again and again where he says, I just wish I was the old Zach Easter again. Why can't I be the old, unloving Zach? He was. He was the jock who everyone loved and he loved everyone. Uh, he wasn't that, he wasn't a bully. He was, you know, the character, his nickname was Ode, which was named after the, that friendly dog in the Battlefield comic strip, Odie. Uh, that was that, just everyone loved him. He saw that he couldn't be that same kid. He still could have been a successful and productive human being. Uh, he would have had to work at it. He was working at it. He was going to uh, speech pathologists to work on memory tricks to improve his memory. He was a different human being because of it. He was forever changed, but he wasn't forever destroyed. And that is what is so sad because he saw himself as a lost cause. He was a different Zach Easter, but he could have still become a productive and I believe happy Zach Easter. And frankly, I think the canning of this is key. That this is so early in, if you want to call it a 
concussion epidemic. Uh, if you just want to call it like the what we're learning about the ways the concussions affect the human brain, that story came so early in this. If that story was 20 years from now, I think we'd have some, some uh, you know, medications and therapies that are proven uh, to help this. But at this point, we don't. And that's, that's where he lost hope. Let's cut to the million-dollar question. What do you believe needs to be done to save more men like Zach? Yeah. It's, it is a million dollar question. If I answered it, I'd get a lot more than a million dollars. That's essentially chapter 10, the final chapter of my book. Like, what is the future here? What is the future of football and what is the future for people like that? If you talk to Dr. Bennett Pamalu, who you know his name because he is one of the most prominent researchers behind CTE and its connection with football, uh, you may know him as Will Smith, who played him in the movie Concussion. If you talk with him, he is uh, sort of an absolutist in this. He says we, the way to solve this is to say you're not allowed to play football until age 18. Why tackle uh, full contact football? Uh, why age 18? Because that is, one, the age of consent, and two, it's the age uh, that you know, the, brain, the human brain is close to fully developed at that point. Uh, so you don't have these, these, these young brains that are being specified. I'll look at that and say, well, you know, you do that, and a generation or two from now, and, and football, if not gone away completely, it'll be completely marginalized because that ruins the pipeline. It kills high school football. You're not going to see high schoolers excited about playing for the varsity flag football team. Uh, and eventually that pipeline will affect college football and the pro. Maybe it becomes like boxing, where it's an inch sport, uh, maybe it goes away. Uh, to me, that's not realistic. Just knowing how much America loves this sport. To me, I think, oh, look, there have been very serious measures taken, you know, from all the way up to the NFL, all the way down to Pop Warner football, about taking the head out of the game, legislating out that unnecessary rough, whether it's a 15-yard penalty or whether you get kicked out of the game first, uh, you know, vicious helmet-to-helmet contact that you have. Uh, I think those are all good and well, and I know if you're an old-school football fan, you cringe that this sport is being, as Zach's father said, it's being specified, but it's an existential question for football. You need to legislate that out. Uh, the bigger question to me is something possible. Uh, you can't legislate this out of the game if you want this game to remain anywhere close to the sport that we know and love in America. Uh, a lot of scientists will say that they believe subconcussive hits are a bigger predictor of CTE than uh, actual concussion. Subconcussive hits being like the smaller hits that happen more often uh, and that just pile up over time. For someone like that, what I would hope is that the way that we understand how to manage post-concussion life uh, becomes more defined. Uh, Zach's family founded a foundation in his honor. It's called CTE Oak Foundation. I'd encourage you to check it out online. And they're helping to fund some very serious scientific research. And one thing that Zach's mother is most excited about is a saliva study that they're helping fund in the state of Iowa. So basically... 
the goal for this, and it may not be for the executives to this can actually be realized. But the goal is have a sideline spit test. You, you spit after having suffering a big hit, and there's proteins in that spit that can say yes or no. This this young man, this boy had a concussion. No, he did not have a concussion. And then instead of the guesswork, where a doctor says, well, your eyes are a little bit all over the place, you, you don't seem right, it appears that you have a concussion. They can say, you know, with you know, a degree of dependentness that we don't have right now. They can say yes or no, you do or don't have a concussion. That's a ways off. And for someone like that right now, uh, I would say for, for parents, it's just a matter of like, be cautious, watch your kids closely. Uh, just because you get one concussion doesn't mean that you're going to end up like that. By no means is that the case. But once you have that first concussion, that's where I think you need to be extremely cautious because once you get that first one, it's like the seal is broken and it's a lot easier to get a second one. And, you know, to, to, to a more you know, immediate degree, if you have a concussion right now, and you go right back in the football game, that's where you're in the danger zone. And if you get another one 10 minutes later, that's where things can be really destructive. So trainers uh, and coaches and parents, they need to take this stuff very, very seriously. I'm not saying that's your kid in bubble wrap, uh, but I am saying watch them closely when they're playing sports like this. You have sons. Will you let them play football? Gosh, I say no right now. Uh, I have a four-year-old and eight-year-old, and I might not have a say in the matter because my wife doesn't know much more strongly than I do. But it's different saying no in theory when I have a four-year-old. What is it like in 10 years when all his friends are playing football? And when I've been watching the Minnesota Vikings lose every Sunday afternoon with him downstairs, you know, for a decade, when he comes to me and he's dad, you love football. Why can't I play this sport? It's a different discussion. My answer right now is no, but it depends where the science is. And, you know, there's a doctor in this book. Sorry to take a little aside. There's a doctor in this book who treated Zach. He's an incredibly impressive doctor, specialized in concussions. He was in the U.S. Navy and ran a concussion hospital in Afghanistan for about eight months. Uh, this is very successful work, and he's replicating it in Iowa. Just opened the clinic last month, in fact. And the point of the clinic is that it brings together lots of different disciplines uh, to us. It's not just, hey, I'm a primary care doctor, but hey, I'm a speech therapist, hey, I'm a neuroscientist, hey, I'm a sports, uh, sports trainer. Bring all these together to treat it. I asked him, he has sons who are a little bit older than me, and he was wondering, as recently as six months ago, whether one of his kids was going to play football and the kid really wanted to play tackle football. And this doctor had played tackle football all the way through high school. And he was right. He was like, it was the best times of my life. We were a terrible team and it didn't matter one bit because of the bonding that he had there. And what this doctor went at, he knows concussions more than anyone else uh, that I've ever met. He's like, I'm going to leave it up to my son. I'm going to push him toward other sports. But if ultimately you want to play football, we are going to go play football. And we're going to be very cautious about it. We're going to keep a strong iron. If he, gets, if he suffers one of these big hits, we will pull him out uh, until he's better or perhaps permanently. 
I think that to me is really telling. That's a doctor who knows more about this uh, than just about anyone was willing to cautiously say yes to his son. His son decided on soccer, by the way, which is another sport that, especially with headers, there's risk of depression not as much as football. Uh, but he was willing to put his son out there and just say, we're going to watch him very closely. Did you ever reach a point in writing Love, Zach, where you broke down and cried, where you just said, I can't do this anymore? I reached... Yeah, I reached a dozen of those points. Uh, I think when you're a journalist in a book like that, ultimately, you have to be have a, a bit of an emotional uh, remove from it, where it's like, okay, I... Whether Zach family loves this book or hates this book uh, is not the point. I need to tell his story accurately and impactfully in a way that reaches uh, as big of an audience as possible because that's what Zach wanted. I think that's the point of a book like this. That said, when you're reporting this book, I'm not at a remove. I'm crying on the phone with Brenda Easter. I'm sitting drinking beers with his mom and dad. Uh, deep into the night on the kitchen table and Brenda's yelling at me because I'm kind of making excuses for football. And she's like, this is the sport that killed my son. How can you be a fan anymore? Uh, I think the parts that impacted me most, it's kind of going back to what I said earlier, were the father-son thing. Uh, his dad has taken this so hard and yet I think on the surface you wouldn't be able to tell. Because what's his way of, of therapy? It's not to sit and fly with you. It's to go out, grab a couple beers, go on a walk with his dogs and with a shotgun in their backyard and go hunt. Uh, that's his therapy. You wouldn't know this. But when you get to this deeper level and, and hearing of a father who did his darndest to create, to turn a boy into what he believed a man should be and there's a big part of that that, that that he believes played into this, uh, that played into his act's destruction. It's so painful to see. I'm nothing like Miles Easter. If you gave me a shot, man, you know, watch out. I'm, uh, I'm, he's, a, he's a cartoon character with like the two shotguns. I'd be like him, just like tying him in the air. I had no idea what I'm doing. But in a way, I, identif- I identified with him in a deeper way than any other character in this book because. It's just so real, the feeling that a father has towards his son, the feeling that I want to protect him, but I know he needs to be out there in the world and be strong and suffer through some bad things in order to learn about life. Uh, that's the story of football, right? That's why we love this sport, why we think this sport helps turn boys into men. And it's also the danger of this sport at the same time, which is really a in a way, what the book lands on is football is not the worst thing ever. Football is not the best thing ever. Football is, and it's also not in the middle. It's both the best and the worst. It's the best sport that there is, and it's the scariest sport that there is. Award-winning sports writer, author, father, our friend Reed Forgrave joins us behind the mic. If you could tell... Zach and players like Zach who are suffering right now, something, what would it be? You may never be the same because of these concussions uh, and because of the way that it affects you. 
but you can still be something incredibly, uh, you know, successful in life, incredibly satisfying in life. You can still lead a good life, even if it's not the life that you may have once imagined for yourself, even if you are different as a human being. There are lots of things that affect us uh, in our lives that change the trajectory of our life, whether it's a tragedy or whether it's uh, some incredibly serendipitous thing that happened in college. Uh, things change all cats. This was something that changed that path. It didn't mean that there was no hope for him. It meant that he had to figure out different ways to, uh, you know, to become successful. He maybe had to work a little bit harder at it, but it didn't mean that there was no hope at all. Uh, there was. It just looked a little bit different. Now, have you been in touch with Zach's former girlfriend, Allie? And uh, how is she doing right now? She's good. Um, she has, so the blessing in Zach's death, if you can think of it, you know, the silver lining in, in such a dark, dark cloud, is that he left behind these writings, and in those writings, he left behind very explicit instructions to Allie, to his family, to, to spread his word, to spread his story, and to kind of further his legacy. And Allie has taken that, so of his parents. Uh, take him out and run with it, uh, whether it's through this foundation or whether it's just simply through you know, working on this book together with me. Uh, they, Allie has graduated from a prestigious law school, Case Western Reserve in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and she now works for a high-flying law firm in New York City. And yet, this law firm has, has helped her do pro bono this. Uh, in that, it is text messages with her you see all these times where he's so proud of her. He's like, you're going to be the first female president. There's so much pride in in his girlfriend and in what she could be. And she is becoming that. She's a really impressive person who is, I don't want to say moving on in life, but moving through this pain and trying to both remember Zach's legacy and make that part of who she is uh, forever. And recognizing she has to live life as well. She's in a serious relationship. She has a boyfriend now, but she also has, after Zach's death, uh, he left behind an envelope of money for her. It was, it was his last paycheck and a, uh, it was like a, a gardening gig that he did over the summer, like a lawn service gig. And it was $1,400. And she took part of that money and she had a ring made uh, that, that has Zach's both things in it. And for her, it's very much like a wedding ring. She thinks of herself as a widow. Uh, she took the rest of that money, and just what she did. I think this is such a metaphor for the way that we feel about football. She took the rest of that money, and one year after Zach's death, drove with his best friend and his college roommate, drove to Lambeau Field and watched a Packers game the day before Christmas. Uh, they watched it together. And it was her way to pay honor to him and it was also really painful for her. Well, she had a very complicated relationship with the spirit of football. But she also recognized football's not going away. So she becomes one of those people who says, you know, kind of an extremist about it. And there are plenty of extremists out there who say, you know, we must eliminate football. The sport must, uh, must no longer exist. No one's going to listen to her, not the marathon. Uh, but she recognizes that there is good to be done for the story. And uh, it's really inspiring. And without, 
without Zach's writing, uh, without those encouraging his family, without them giving his family such a charge, this this never would have been a book. Uh, I do see this book as, in a way, it's carrying out Zach's well, my friend, time's running out, so it's time for the Rocking Eight. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. I'm feeling the pressure. What's your favorite band T-shirt? Pearl Jam. Um, that's my favorite band of all time. I have a T-shirt from them from uh, the mid '90s, and uh, just just heard a Pearl Jam song on the radio this morning when I was driving my kid to daycare. Last sporting event you attended? Sporting event. I've covered sports for so long, but then the past year I haven't. It might have been, it was probably a Twins game last year, but the last one that mattered and it was really fun and it was memorable was uh, 2019 NBA Finals. Uh, Toronto Raptors and Canada covering the NBA for CBS Sports. That was a, was an absolutely incredible thing. What was the name of your first car? <laughs> Geo Prism. I called it Geoey. That was uh, that was the car's name. It was a really bad attempt at a good car nickname. Coffee or tea? Coffee. So much coffee. My goodness. Stop the coffee already. What's the hobby you picked up during COVID? Um, the hobby. I, I briefly was doing some baking, uh, which did not go well. Uh, but the hobby that I'm planning to pick up this winter, since I live here in Minnesota, and COVID has been, the blessing of COVID has been, it has been during a nice month, but any day now, winter's going to come. We bought uh, skis for myself, my wife, and my two boys. And they've never been skiing before. And I've decided every single weekend this winter, and hopefully some afternoons and evenings after school, we will go skiing. Because otherwise, I'm just going to get skiing incredibly depressed during the incredibly long and cold Minnesota winter. Now, when will the next time Mizzou will win a non-wrestling conference championship? Next question. <laughs> Come on, man. I don't know. Like, like, like uh, my alma mater is so depressing. Like, I remember, like, one time we were ranked number one in football in, like, 2007. It lasted a week, and then we got smoked by Oklahoma the next week. Uh, I don't want to be a Missouri fan, but like it's better than the one pro team that I grew up rooting for, which was I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as a Cleveland Browns diehard fan. So anything is an upgrade from that, including being a Missouri sports fan. As a Cleveland Browns fan, I salute you. I was there for the drive. The worst part was the Muni didn't have urinals. They had troughs. And they were so close. The first football game I ever went to, my uncle took me to meet Municipal Stadium in, I think it was 1989, Brown Cowboys were there, the, the opener, and we sat behind a big gross cement pole because that's Municipal Stadium. But it ended up being, and I looked this up like a year or two ago, I'd be like, what happened during that game? I don't really remember it. It was Bill Belichick's first game as a coach, and it was Emmett Smith's first game as a rookie. I had no idea like the history that was happening before me because it was just depressing municipal stadium, but uh, and being a depressing person for life. What's your favorite family holiday story? You know what? It might be last uh, last Christmas. And I know that usually you think these holiday stories should be like when you're growing up. Um, and like my dad building the train around the Christmas tree, which he did. It was always disappointing that I wasn't more interested in it. But last Christmas, we went to the Caribbean to an island called Bonaire. 
<laughs> it was beautiful, and it was like our first time doing a Caribbean vacation, and it might be, you know, the last vacation that we ever take because COVID is going to ruin everything forever and ever and ever. But we took on, on Christmas, uh, I think it was the day before Christmas, we went to a donkey preserve and drove around the donkey preserve in a pickup truck, and like, there's really like hundreds of donkeys and feeding and carrots, you know, getting up in the face, and uh, that's like the number one. Christmas memory from Christmas 2019 and then like a week later COVID appeared out in China in social media you say you're calmer than you are when was the last time you weren't calm uh, when I had too much caffeine that line is uh, from the best movie of all time which I told each of my sons for their 16th birthday they get to watch the big Lebowski uh, with their father with me uh, but calmer than you are is what uh, the dude says in the uh, in the coffee shop, when he's getting getting yelled at by the uh, by the waitress. Last time when I wasn't calm was probably yesterday when I was yelling at my kids about something stupid and they were fighting. Like, welcome to parenthood. I'm no longer calm than anything. The dude divides. <laughs> Such a good movie. <laughs> he's got great memories of a donkey preserve. Remembers the troughs at Memorial Stadium in Cleveland and drinks way too much coffee. His latest book is The Touching and Heartbreaking Love Zack. It's our friend Reed Forgrave. Reed, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>